My guest this week is author and former US diplomat, Ethan Chorin. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've just published a new book called Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. Could you give listeners an overview of what the book is about and some of the themes discussed within it? Uh, sure. The book is, uh, well, it was, it was about 10 years in the making. It's obviously being published on the 10th anniversary of the, of the attack. Uh, it, uh, you know, the, the basic premise is that uh, America has been focused for a very long time uh, around the partisan recriminations around, around Benghazi uh, that have to do largely with the period of, of 13 hours around the attack itself. Um, but we've sort of lost sight of the long, longer tail causes and also the consequences of not only the uh, attack itself, but more, more importantly, the, the, the scandal uh, on U.S. foreign policy uh, and uh, various conflicts, in, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So um, I sort of call that the Benghazi paradox that, you know, we spent so much time and so many, you know, there are 10 congressional committees investigating this and, and more words in print than probably any other uh, scandal in modern American history. Mm-hmm. And we still are left with uh, relatively little understanding of, of, the, of the dynamics around it, or even of, of what happened and who was responsible for the, t- the attack itself. Many of our listeners were very young and likely at, at primary school, myself included, when the incidents in Benghazi happened and indeed when the fall of Libya happened. So ju- just for the benefits of listeners who perhaps may have heard about this event but don't know too much about it, could you explain just what exactly happened in Benghazi 10 years ago? Uh, yes, well, uh, there was, uh, it was the anniversary of, uh, of 9-11, and earlier in the day, a uh, demonstration uh, took place around the U.S. Embassy in Cairo that turned violent uh, and was in reaction to ostensibly a hate video that had been produced in the United States and aired, redubbed into, into Arabic a few, uh, a few days earlier. And uh, several hours later, uh, in the evening, in Benghazi, Ambassador Stevens and 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 one of his colleagues were were uh, were visiting uh, the U.S. Uh, mission in Benghazi, and the mission was under came under attack uh, shortly after 9:40 p.m. Uh, in the resulting uh, battle, uh, Chris Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith, his information officer, were were uh, very tragically killed. And two other individuals, uh, security uh, special forces uh, personnel were killed in a firefight at the CIA complex uh, uh, a short distance away later that later that night. Um, I was in Benghazi during the time on a, an effort to to uh, build medical infrastructure in the city, and uh, was privy to to much of the chaos around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, this incident essentially. Uh, uh, it came in the kind you know, the, the broad impression was that these two incidents were somehow connected uh, to the to the broader uh, Arab Muslim reaction to the hate video. Uh, but as time came uh, went by, the you know, details became more and more confusing. And this was the sort of the, the node of, of, of a 
a snowballing scandal between Republicans and Democrats back in the States around uh, who knew what, when, and, and, uh, and who was responsible. Mm-hmm. I argue that the, the I mean, the, the Benghazi scandal had, uh, or Benghazi was a perfect scandal for a number of reasons, which I can go into mm-hmm. uh, and do in my book. We'll go into a few of the um, issues, the wider issues relating to the, the Benghazi issues and some of the scandals that arise from it. But you, you mentioned there in your answer that you were, you were actually in Benghazi at the time. You were there on the ground and you mentioned there's some of the chaos that was going on. Could you just give a, a further insight into what the situation was really like uh, in, in Libya at that time? Well, the uh, security situation had been deteriorating in Benghazi particular, particularly uh, for the months and, and, and weeks and, and even days before the attack. Uh, and I and my colleagues were concerned, to say the least. Um, I think the, uh, there's a sense of urgency on, on both uh, our part and, and also on the part of uh, Ambassador Stevens to get out to Benghazi and try to do whatever was possible to uh, sort of stave off or, or the, the, the insta- instability and or get things done that might... Uh, it might contribute to reversing it. Benghazi has been had been through a periods of uh, of up, upheaval before, uh, and certainly since the the 2011 revolution, which had its its epicenter Benghazi. I, I had been in in Benghazi several times uh, before the attack, uh, and you know, uh, the, the city could go through periods of looking like it was completely calm and fine, and uh, all of a sudden something happens that that. Uh, uh, belies that uh, that impression. I mean, when we when I arrived the day before the attack, things were uh, remarkably placid. And indeed, like six or seven hours after the attack, in the early morning of the twelfth, the city was ghost quiet. Um, there had been all kinds of uh, of, of military sort of militia movements around the hotel where uh, we were staying, which wasn't wasn't uh, very far from the the mission. The night of the, you know, around the attack and gunfire, and we heard the mortar shots. And uh, I was on the the phone with the with one of Ambassador Stevens' security people as the attack was was underway. Um, so it was a very tense and and uh, frightening night. Uh, but again, at, at one point, uh, I mean, we were sort of vigilant uh, about our own safety and what was going on, and trying to figure out what in fact was happening until about six o'clock in the morning. And I, I drifted off finally to sleep. I hadn't slept in in more than um, twenty four hours. Uh, and when I when I woke up, the uh, all of that activity was gone. I mean, the, there were there had been personnel carriers and people carrying uh, uh, weapons and, and and dressed in fatigues and an elaborate mm-hmm. sort of array of uh, of stuff happening outside the hotel, and it was just completely gone within the course of an hour. In the book, well, I suppose really, we just focus on the title for a moment. You argue that this particular event pushed America and its world to the brink. So why is is it this specific event, do you think it was such an important moment? Why was this such a significant moment, perhaps even a turning point in, well, really 21st century history? Well, it was certainly a turning point in, in, in American history, and, and the reasons are not immediately obvious. I think the the uh, much of that impact came from the political rec- recriminations back in, in in Washington between Democrats and Republicans. And as I started to mention before, there was something about the the timing and the nature of the Benghazi attack. Mm-hmm. 
um, that turned this into a perfect vehicle for uh, partisan slaughter, basically. Mm. Part of it was the fact that it occurred on the 9-11 anniversary. Uh, part of it was that it, it uh, occurred right in the lead up to the 2012 presidential elections for which national security issues were a major platform of uh, Republican challenge to, to, uh, to President Obama. Um, and also it was a particular moment in the evolution of social media. I interviewed many social media experts and uh, statisticians who have been looking at the development of, uh, of uh, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and its use as a political weapon or polarizing uh, force. And uh, several of them have maintained that um, the timing of Benghazi was critical, that the uh, technology and the algorithms that could that have demonstrated their ability to to sil to create silos and and amplifying forces were really not quite uh, mature until fall of 2012. So basically around the around the Benghazi attack. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, and then basically the fog that resulted uh, and the uh, noticeable increase in risk aversion on the part of, uh, of, of U.S. government officials uh, and then the Obama administration essentially meant mm -hmm. that the United States pulled back its resources from many active conflicts and um, took a more passive role. And I think right. uh, this, all of this has allowed America's adversaries to help sort of come, come in, into, the, into right. those spaces that America has left. So you, you mentioned there about the, the fact that this became a, a, quite a partisan issue in the United States. And you, you mentioned there as well the, the impact it had on the 2012 presidential election. But, the, you know, the, there have been terrorist incidents around, around the world previously that uh, have been implicated the United States before. But what, what was different about the situation in Benghazi? Why did it create such a, a controversy within the United States? Why was it that both, both Democrats and Republicans decided to make this such a partisan issue? Well, I think Republicans and Democrats have been each, at each other's throats and particularly about 9-11 uh, and its implications mm -hmm. for, you know, since 9-11, uh, since 2001. And Benghazi was sort of, I see it as something as a, as a signal booster. It, it reopened those, those wounds and uh, allowed for a degree of, you know, all of those factors that I mentioned, the... Mm -hmm specificity of its political relevance mm -hmm. at that particular point in time, I think, allowed and, and its connection to other partisan identity issues like uh, immigration and, you know, many of the factors that, that led to the, to, to the blowout in, in the UK over, over Brexit were present right. in the US and were ignited by this, uh, mm -hmm. by this event. And, you know, unfortunately, I think, as I described in the book, I think one of the active, active factors there was the fact that the Republicans and the Democrats sort of fell into a pre-programmed uh, relationship struggle. Tom and Jerry, if you remember the old comic yeah. uh, cartoon, Tom and Jerry, where uh, one plays the aggressor and the other plays the es escapee. And this interacted in such a way that it had unintended consequences. I think basically the, the mm -hmm. Democrats were so terrified that 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 the Republicans would use some kind of 9-11 type event to deny Obama a second term, that they reacted in a way that was sort of visceral and evasive and mm. enabled the Republican Republican challengers to essentially uh, build other uh, narratives on top of one of evasion. 
So there's a, it's not, it, I, I sort of see that both, both parties are to blame in their tradition, in, mm-hmm. in exercising their traditional roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, uh, you had, had uh, the scandal grew out of something that really should have been contained, uh, at least by the professional bureaucracies, if they were working more proper, properly. Yeah. The idea that we couldn't figure out what, 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 that there wasn't a firm narrative about what happened, firm and verifiable narrative about what happened in Benghazi. There was no shortage of information. We should have had, as many other colleagues and diplomats and other witnesses have said, uh, you know, since really it was very clear to us on the ground that the outlines of what had happened, the idea that it could be vague for another weeks after afterward, yeah. um, and to some extent still the the, the narratives are 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 not correct, is just mm-hmm. quite astounding. Uh, and it's yeah. for politics. No, it is, and the the issues you mentioned there, and particularly around the context of the. 2012 presidential election, there were quite a lot of arguments that uh, spilled over into the the 2016 US presidential election. And we we know how contentious an election that was. And a lot of that was because Hillary Clinton was, of course, President Obama's Secretary of State at the time. Now, as you say, both sides have their own version of events about what took place. And particularly in 2016, you you had the, the Republicans painting Secretary Clinton as almost like a war criminal in some cases, whilst Democrats were trying to almost exonerate her for her actions within uh, that moment of time. So you've talked about some of the effects it had on the 2012 election, but what do you think the instance in Benghazi had on the 2016 election? Well, that's an interesting question because most Americans basically, uh, I think there's a general impression that the Benghazi uh, affair had very little effect on the 2016 election when it comes to, came down to it. And that's largely because the Democrats really had no, even though this partisan smoke and fire was, was, uh, was underway for, for, for the better part of Obama's second term and leading up to the 2016 election, its relevance seemed to disappear at the end. And that also is for political reasons. I think the mm-hmm. Democrats didn't want to acknowledge or risk inciting more noise around Benghazi. Uh, so they so they don't want to talk about it. And the, the Republicans were being accused uh, of very right, rightfully of overreach and were mm. sort of retreating from referencing Benghazi. And Benghazi had produced all of these other sort of derivative controversies like that over uh, Hillary Clinton's use mm. of, uh, Secretary Clinton's use of a private server for her work emails. Uh, and that was framed very heavily by Benghazi and the Benghazi committee that that, this, that essentially, if not discovered, then publicized this uh, in the course of its investigations. And I guess I should say that I, I believe that the, the uh, Benghazi affair had a great deal of influence on the 2016 election. Uh, and many of the senior Democratic officials that I interviewed for the book uh, have told me that they also concur that essentially Benghazi was the common denominator for many of the other factors that subsequently were blamed for or credited for Hillary or Donald Trump's loss and win, respectively. Right. Even the, 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 the Russian cyber attacks, for example, relied heavily on, on uh, Hillary uh, and Benghazi-related memes and other, other mm-hmm. content. So we, we've mentioned here the effect the instance in Benghazi had on the US political system and uh, the impact it had on political parties and campaigns, but specifically on how the United States uh, armed forces and the military have responded to this. 
How, how did those events in Benghazi influence the US military response to other conflicts in places like Syria and Yemen? And I suppose, look, looking more recently at the situation in Ukraine following Russia's invasion? Hmm. Well, that's a very good question. As I mentioned before, I think that one of the, one of the striking impacts of, of Benghazi, uh, the attack and more uh, directly the scandal was that uh, was a sense of, of, of profound risk aversion. This was, I mean, I think, I, I think the, the Obama administration was, was profoundly affected by, by the loss of Ambassador Stevens and the, the attack. Um, it was seen as something of a of a uh, an unwelcome and somewhat unexpected um, slap against the the, the intervention in, in in Libya and the NATO, NATO broader NATO effort and somewhat in, you know it basically marked the end of uh, America's support for for Libya. Uh, we withdrew very quickly from Benghazi right after, you know, with the evacuation of the last American officials. Um, and essentially, we went from having protected a city uh, of, of just under a million people from Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi's rage mm -hmm. to handing it over to ISIS and Al Qaeda. And the Libya's transition process became uh, very uh, fragile and, and essentially collapsed. And we've had 10 years of proxy augmented civil conflict uh, ever since. And, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, and its allies were uh, in the process, of, U.S. was in the process of, of trying to essentially manage uh, hot spots across the region when Benghazi hit, uh, including in Syria, where there were um, direct connections with Libya in the sense that the U.S., again, this, is, this hasn't been clarified to the extent that it really should be, but the U.S. was in the process of essentially placing bets on various uh, rebel groups in both countries. Um, they were shared re resources uh, through proxies, and we were trying to decide effectively who are the moderates and who are the who are the extremists and what to do about it. And Benghazi has effectively disrupted a channel from from Libya to Syria. The degree to which the United's of we weapons and personnel, as in rebel rebels who are moving back and forth. You know, you look at Syria, and when when Benghazi hit, President Assad was hanging by a thread. At least that's what the the Western Western leaders were saying. And a few months later, he was back entrenched in power in in Damascus, uh, and the rebels in in uh, in Syria were obtaining large amounts of weapons from other states uh, in the region and advisors and funds. As one noted journalist has, has, uh, has said, she believed that uh, Benghazi killed the whispers of a strong U.S.-Syria policy. And you can mm -hmm. extrapolate from, from, from this to other, other theaters. Uh, you know, at the time uh, of Benghazi, also things in Yemen were heating up. Uh, the Houthis were not yet a, uh, a full-blown force. The U.S. was was focused mainly on uh, on, on Al Qaeda, and in part, I think, because of or in so encouraged by Benghazi, was was supporting more and more remote control warfare through drone drone attacks and things like this, which was turning some percentage of the population of Yemen against us. And our our attention really wasn't on what was going on with the Houthis. The various Yemen experts have pointed out that in the wake of Benghazi, America's sort of on the ground uh, intel intelligence, our, our spies and our diplomats were essentially 
sequestered and not able to to get uh, a good intelligence about what was going on. And of course, the Libya conflict encouraged, as Libya fell apart, you had uh, states like Russia and and Turkey entering into the fray and creating their own proxy uh, relationships on the ground. And, you know, that and, uh, of course, the same thing was going on in Syria. Both those countries were, were essentially a- activating their own interests in, 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 in Syria. And again, this is this phenomenon of the U.S. sort of recoiling and other states using those that for propaganda purposes, but also uh, entering into, into, our, into our, the spaces that we've, we've left so the Ukraine, you know, firstly, you've got uh, the Crimea annexation, uh, and then, you know, you can trace trace this sort of trajectory all, as far as uh, the, the war in Ukraine, I think. Uh, had things been different in Libya and Syria, uh, you know, we, we, may be, we may have been in a very different place with respect to that conflict. Right. So since the events in Benghazi and, of course, the, the subsequent civil war that Libya's uh, been uh, facing, Libya's become a, a pariah state, really. I suppose in many ways it can be classed as a, a failed state, given the, the current situation there. Is, is it possible for Libya to recover as, as things are and, be, and potentially become a more active player on, on the world stage? Or are the issues that the, the country faces just too, too severe and uh, too entrenched? Well, Libya is in a very unfortunate position at the moment in the sense that the powers that now sort of call the shots from the sidelines, or at least influence uh, that, them significantly, are deeply entrenched. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Turkey uh, and to some other degree, Russia are sort of uh, among the, the various proxy states uh, sort of duking it out in, in, in Libya. And there's no one who can gain domestic popular opinion is that doesn't exactly come into the come into the equation. The Libyans are the are the victims. And unfortunately, I think we we the West and certainly the US and the UK had an opportunity after the intervention to uh, not make the same mistake that we made in Iraq, uh, where we left this gaping political vacuum that was then mm. obviously uh, hijacked. Uh, we did the same thing in, in, in Libya by expecting things to uh, a light touch to be able to um, further this, this opening and, and a, d- a democratic process. The, the intervention in Libya was justified on the basis of the emerging at that time norm, the responsibility to protect and protect from human rights abuses, genocide, etc. But if you look at the literature on, on that norm uh, and the prescriptions that come along along with it, it's uh, there is something called the responsibility to rebuild. That you just can't simply intervene to correct one, say, uh, genocidal situation or uh, intense civil conflict and expect that the country will somehow heal itself. Um, but we did not. We did not do that. President Obama later uh, said in an interview with uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times that he felt like the one regret that he had at the time was uh, not uh, planning for the day after the intervention mm-hmm. in Libya, and that right. certainly is the case. So I'd, I'd like to move away from Benghazi for a moment to look more more broadly at the Middle East, because uh, as we speak, the the second anniversary of the the Abraham Accords is is being marked. So for listeners who might not have heard of the Abraham Accords or perhaps heard the term but don't really know what it means, could you just give an overview of of what those are? Well, the Abraham Accords was something of a surprise uh, agreement struck uh, with, uh, I mean, again, there there are several sort of versions of what happened here, but the 
Trump administration had been pushing a very hard line with respect to uh, Israel and its uh, the terms upon which it might agree to some kind of a, a peace with uh, with the Palestinians, basically it's a bull in the China shop approach, and was giving the Israelis as a green green light for annexation uh, of parts of the West Bank, um, and all of a sudden, sort of the, the there was this opportunity. Uh, to flip the the traditional logic that the various states had to um, resolve the Palestinian issue before coming to a normalization, uh, Arab-Israeli normalization, put it on its head and say, okay, uh, certain states will normalize relationship with with Israel uh, and in exchange for Israel not going ahead with the annexation and that the peace, peace building would follow from that rather than as a uh, as a precondition. And this was a big innovation in terms of uh, uh, certainly a break with the past and was treated largely by the Palestinians as, as a insult that uh, and a betrayal of, of cause. The main signatories were the U- US and the United Arab Emirates, but the agreement was uh, later expanded to include uh, uh, states like uh, uh, Bahrain uh, and Morocco and, and mm-hmm. Sudan. So you've got this framework for uh, for broaden uh, cooperation with Israel, which has all sorts of implications for the region, um, and is certainly good for both Israel and the UAE. And the question again, you know, that 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 remains is what what are the long term payoffs of this? Will will cooperation and more a sense of greater security for Israel lead to actual real peace and uh, lasting peace with the Palestinians? So in, in order for the, the Abraham Accords to happen, you know, th- there had to be a real fundamental change in position from nations like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain for, for this. So what, what do you think the catalyst was for those countries to want to not only engage in conversation with Israel and have the United States broker that, but to actually go all the way and actually sign a normalization agreement with the state of Israel. Well, I mean, the the incentives have been there for a long time. The the uh, many of the states uh, in, in the region and the Gulf have uh, sympathetic uh, goals with uh, with Israel and see Israel as a source of uh, complementary skills and technology. Um, certainly, there's a, a, a common concern over uh, the uh, threat posed by by Iran to, to to the region and to their own to, and to their respective interests. Um, of course, things have gotten, as usual in the Middle East, very complicated because some of the same parties that were at least interested in the in the Abraham Accords are are, are at the same time pursuing uh, relations, relationship mending exercises with Iran. And it's and that that instability and that that sort of uh, back and forth is also very much conditioned by a sense that the United States really isn't the the firm, reliable partner that it, that that um, in the region or the arbiter of what uh, overall uh, arbiter of what what uh, is possible and not that it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know the, the, these uh, these incentives were there for for a long time, but the Abraham Accords, by a you know in, in its kind of in, in a sudden innovation, allowed allowed for a, a narrative that would enable enable that to happen uh, mm-hmm. politically and, and otherwise, yeah. and it and it was a big risk. Yeah. Um, 
again, I think, you know, the, the, the peace talks, the, the Arab Israeli peace process uh, has been, has been in deadlock and basically moribund for, for, for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And there were many people who felt like, okay, you know, it would take some, some outrageous maneuver from a politician as unconventional as, uh, to say the least, as, as Donald Trump to, to move things forward. And one thing that is, isn't exactly clear is how much of the Abraham Accords uh, idea came from uh, the Trump administration and how much of it actually came from the Emiratis. Right. Well, certainly an interesting perspective there. And uh, I'm, I'm sure over the next months and years, we'll see how those develop. So my final question to you then today, just to, to go back to what we were discussing earlier around Benghazi and Libya, this was clearly such a contentious issue for the United States and a really profound change in uh, United States foreign policy, but also for the wider Middle East, North Africa region. So to finish then, what do you think we can learn from the events of Benghazi and what can perhaps other countries learn from what happened there? Well, I guess on the very basic, most basic level, if you're going to uh, intervene in another country, one should have a, a long-term uh, strategy uh, and uh, not uh, assume that other other parties who have your who share your interest are going to pick up the slack. Um, you know, I think that the the U.S. Uh, has historically done such interventions very poorly, but we don't seem to learn the the lessons from that. Uh, so that's one. Um, but I think the other and the other other lessons are also sort of longer term and more uh, general in the sense that, uh, you know, part of the reason that Benghazi was, uh, you know, it took place in the first place is that the United States and, and the UK was definitely involved in this process had had a long and sort of wavering uh, or flip-flopping relationship with uh, radical Islam uh, and or groups that deciding what groups were radical and what groups were moderate. And I think the, the, the U.S. got kind of bitten by its, uh, both its past uh, positive and, and very neg and negative relationships with these groups. Uh, you know, the Libya rapprochement process that took place after 2003 uh, included the extra, you know, basically the kidnapping and rendering back of uh, Afghan, uh, you know, Libyan Afghans, uh, Islamists, to Gaddafi for torture and uh, and interrogation, and we subsequently, due to another sort of ra rather dramatic shift in policy, uh, engaged with increasingly engaged with them. Uh, and again, the, the lines of of, of uh, the boundaries were never qu quite established, and I think that uh, those kinds of uh, of uh, sort of short-term policy shifts without uh, a, a broader perspective on, on, what, the, on what the dangers uh, might be and it can, can, can cause a great deal of damage. Okay. Ethan Chorin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much.